But as we've been looking at in our class, the biblical covenants, uh, there is a difference when you start looking on the website. If you start looking on the web or other places, you're going to come across, if you start typing in covenants, you have to be able to start discerning between biblical covenants and theological covenants. Uh, there, there's a whole section of theology called covenant theology. They hold to this idea that there are certain covenants, though you're not going to find them in the Bible. They, they say theologically you'll see them, whether it's the covenants of works, the covenant of grace. Uh, but you, you don't see that laid out in Scripture. What we're talking about are the covenants that God has established biblically as we look in the Bible and say, what are the covenants that He has made with mankind? Whether it's with uh, one individual, with a nation, uh, with, with humanity. And so as we've looked, we started, in, and you can trace the story of Scripture through with these biblical covenants. They help, they, they, fri- they help with the framework, the structure, the story of the Word of God. We, we left off a few weeks ago, actually, in here. We were talking about the, uh, the Ten Commandments and Moses coming down. And uh, in our class last week, we covered, or two weeks ago, yeah, last week, uh, the class we had. Sorry, I just saw that there's a light out. It's going to drive me nuts. And now it's going to drive everybody else nuts too. So uh, uh, there's, there's a fact that Moses comes out. He goes, he goes up after the whole 20, 10 commandments in Exodus 20, receives the law, part of the law. And then he's going to go back up. We know that the second time he goes back up, there's the, uh, the golden calf. And Moses is going to receive the law from God. And as Moses receives the law, and he's sharing that, that law, with the people, it is God's way of explaining to the people, this is how I want you to worship, this is how I expect you to live. As a representative of me, as a kingdom of priests, this is what I want you to be doing as an individual. And we can learn a lot from the law. Please don't look and say, well, the law is no good for us. We're just going to chuck the law out and say it's done. That's, that's not the case. All scripture is profitable. It's all given by inspiration of God. And it is good and it is profitable for us. And some of the battles we have is, well, which ones do we take and which ones do we not take? And how do we, how do we wrestle through that? Uh, we'll talk about that just a little bit today, not completely. If you want to wrestle through that, take dispensations class with us sometime. And we'll, we'll work through all that. But as you look at, as you look at your notes this morning, uh, looking at them and saying, okay, what do, we, what do we learn about the law? And we started to sum it up in our class talking about the law. You can sort of see it through a couple avenues. You can see the law's, the law's context. The law's context was very much given. We talked about that with Exodus 20, Moses going up and people coming out. And God says in Exodus, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. So I've redeemed you. I have started with a relationship. The context of the law is relationship. God is about a relationship with his people. He's not just simply an austere God who's way off in the distance, is aloof, and has nothing to do with people. He wants and desires relationship with people. Now, remember, this relationship was not earned by their obedience. The law was given after there was already faith. They already put the blood on the door at Passover. They've already, by faith, crossed over the Red Sea. The the nation of Israel has already been redeemed. The law itself that was given to them was not designed to redeem the people. The law was given to a people who were already redeemed. And how do they live and how do they respond to this holy and just and righteous God? So it, the, the law was given, and it was given by God, and it was given for these people to, to relate to him. So the context of the law is very much relationship. Now, the law's center, if you're going to look, what is its center with the law? What is, 
what is God saying when he talks about the law? And it gets summed up in the, Old, or the New Testament again. When, remember when Jesus asked the rich, rich young ruler, he says to him, he says, uh, so what, what about the law? And he says, okay, I'm to love God and to, uh, to, to love others, basically. And when you look, hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The law directs us to, to have a life for God and to love God and to love others. And so that's basically, if you were going to sum up the law, there, there it is. Love God, love other people. It's teaching. And when you look at the law, look at the first 10 commandments. What are they? The first four. They're dealing with how to relate to God, how to show him love, how to show him respect, how to be faithful to him. The next six talk about how to relate to other people. And the law continually does that as you look through the Mosaic law, how to, how to relate to God, how to relate to people. And what happens if we break our relationship? What happens if we, you know, murder? What, what is fleshed out? And so God lays some of that out in the law. God says, okay, if there's this sin that occurs, here's what is to happen. If you violate this relationship with me, here is what's going to happen. And so God is continually looking at that vertical relationship and that horizontal relationship as you go through the law. And as you go through the law, as you read through it on your own, I would encourage you, notice, okay, is this talking about God and his people? Is this talking about his people relating to his people? And what are some of the principles? What are some of the truths that I can, I can, I can draw from it? You know, even think about it. We don't go to the tabernacle to worship. We don't have to bring this, the, the goat that is coming. But look at all the preparation. Look at the importance that was given to the people as they were preparing themselves to go to worship. How much time they took. How much they, they uh, sanctified themselves. How much they, they looked and said, this is an important time and I'm going to prepare myself as I go to worship. I think that's a great principle for us to be thinking about as we get ready to go to worship. Even on Saturday night, how do we prepare ourselves to be prepared to enter into worship? Or is it just like, okay, this is something I just put in my calendar. I slot it out, okay, from 9.15 to 12.15, that'll be God time, and, and I'll just do that. Or do I prepare myself as I come to worship? Not, not necessarily, okay, what, what type of clothes am I going to wear, although that was a very big deal in the, the Jewish culture. But have I mentally, spiritually prepared myself as I go? So look at some of those principles as you, as you work through the law. And I'd encourage you, don't avoid Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but read through them with some of that, that framework in mind. But what is the law's content? It's diverse. When you look at the law, it's, it's overwhelming at times because we start looking, we're saying, okay, what am I supposed to do with this passage or this passage? Why does it talk about the linen ephod and what the priests are going to wear when they're walking in? And what does that have to do with me? Don't dismiss it. If you truly, and, and we hold to the idea that all scripture is given by God and is inspired and is profitable, those passages are profitable for us. Read through them, work to understand them. But when we look at, when we look at the, the, the law, it really is given for us, to, uh, for the people at that time, for Israel, for them to know how to relate to God and how to live, how to live as a nation, how to live as a kingdom of priests, how to live as God's servant. How are they supposed to live in relationship to him? How are they to live in relationship to others? So there's a lot of diversity in the law. What, what do you do if you're, you're a Jew living at the, in you know, Old Testament times and you are to, excuse me, you have an 
dealing with another individual. There's a lawsuit. There's problems. How do you handle that? The law would address it. And the, the priests and others would go through and they would, they would tell you to look through that. Now, we know that God begins the law with the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And as he, he looks at that, the first four, as I mentioned, deal with relationship to God. The second are going to deal with the relationship to, to other people. The interesting one, out of all the Ten Commandments, six or nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. There's one that is not. That's which one? The Sabbath. The Sabbath day. To, to keep the Sabbath day. It's the only one that is not reiterated in the, in the Sabbath. And yet, I would argue that there is a principle, and we talked about this in our class last week a little bit, there is a principle of the Sabbath that we should still be looking at because it is a principle of rest. It is a principle of, of setting time aside to worship God. Sunday is not the Sabbath day. This is not, this is not our Sabbath worship. Sabbath is from Friday night to Saturday night. This is not a, a change we have changed. The Bible talks about that they worshiped God on the first day of the week. It's a day that we represent the time when Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. And so we worship representing and remembering that on Sunday. But the principle of Sabbath is, is very important, even in the Old Testament. And remember this, when was the principle of rest initiated? It was in creation, wasn't it? It was years and years and years and years and years before God gives the law to Moses. So there is a principle of rest throughout scripture. Even when you get to the New Testament, where do we ultimately, where do you find ultimate rest in? Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest comes through Christ. Rest comes through that relationship with him. And that's where ultimate, ultimate rest comes through. But looking and saying, there are times, and we, we as a culture, especially our culture, if you take time to, to rest, how many often feel lazy? Oh, people are going to look at me and say this. They're going to say, why are you resting? Why are you taking time? No, there is, there is a truth of rest. I mean, even when you get to Elijah and the prophets of Baal, what is the God-ordained thing for Elijah? Remember, he's exhausted. He's physically exhausted. He's emotionally exhausted. And what does God do? He takes him aside and he says, you're going to rest and you're going to eat because you are really battling and you need this. Our bodies are designed for rest. Remember, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God's intended design for the Sabbath, even in the law, was to provide an opportunity for people to rest. God understood the importance. Now, when you look through the, the law, you look through the purpose and the, the reasons for uh, the Sabbath, it's to cease from work. It talks about to enjoy God and to enjoy one another. So we have those opportunities. Even here, even though this is not Sabbath, we set up time aside, and we should be setting time aside in our lives for a little bit of rest, to enjoy God, to enjoy his people, and to enjoy relationships with other people. Now, the Sabbath is important, especially in Old Testament and Jewish context. As you look at the Sabbath and understand why is it important, remember there are a number of passages. God, God even built in. It wasn't just a, a Sabbath once a week. Do you remember? He built in rhythms of Sabbath. Every seven years, you were supposed to allow the Israel, allow the land to, to remain undone. Don't, don't harvest it. Don't plant. You let it go. Every, every uh, 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the, the seven, seventh, and the next year, this, the, after the 49th year, that 50th year, the year of Jubilee is we're bringing in and celebrating 
the freedom, giving back the land to the original owners, giving back the slaves, giving them their freedom. All those things were, were built into the law because God understood the importance of this idea of rest and this idea of Sabbath to them. Now, that plays in especially to those of you taking the Daniel class. Go over to, go over to Jeremiah 29. Let's, let's start there. As we, we got a little bit of the review in. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is given about about a hundred years before uh, Daniel is in Babylonian captivity. So Jeremiah 29, uh, we'll go down to verse 10. Jeremiah is writing, now remember the context of Israel by this point. They are going through wicked kings, uh, and we're specifically talking Judah when we're talking Jeremiah in the south. Judah's had a couple good kings, but overall, you continually see the moral decline of the Jewish people, whether it's through Israel in the north or Judah in the south. And you, you see this decline happening. In uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, and I'm, uh, I'm reading New American Standard this morning just so everybody's aware. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now, Jeremiah is looking and saying, it's going to be 70 years. He's going to talk about that. And, and Pastor Will, when he goes through it, he'll work through the 77s and the 490 years and everything that's going to happen. But this is right around 625. Babylon is going to, be ta- is going to take Judah out in 586. And so by the time you get to Daniel chapter 9, if you want to go over to there real quick, just a, an interesting side note to tie in that this actually does tie into uh, even Daniel class. So I can't be accused of trying to steal people away from, you know, pastor's class. I'll tie in Daniel here. Yeah, you, you know who you are. Yeah. Uh, Daniel 9 verse 2. What is, what is Daniel reading? It says, in the, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, he's looking at that, and when you start taking that into context, why the, the 490 years, the 77s? And why, why was that all taking place? It goes directly back to the Sabbaths. When you start reading through the prophets, you start reading through Chronicles, you start to see some of the reasons and the reason that Israel was taken captive is because they never, or Judah especially, they never practiced these Sabbaths of allowing the land to rest, which ultimately the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day to enjoy others, but it was a day that you demonstrated your trust in God's provision, that he was the one. We don't, we don't face that completely here. If I don't go out today to my garden in the backyard and pull the tomatoes that need to be picked and I don't pull the peppers that I still am getting, if I don't do that, guess what? I still have today's daily bread, don't I? I'm going to be fine. I'm going to go to the fridge. I'm going to pull food out, and it's not a big deal. When you lived in a culture where daily you were working to go and harvest your food for that day, when you were daily working to to make sure that you had stuff for your family at night to eat, to have water that you could drink. And now God is saying, don't take this day. You prepare for it and you enjoy this day of rest. And then on top of that, he says, hey, seven years from now, don't even plant grain. Don't even, take, don't even deal with your food, your, your fields. 
It's an implied aspect of I will provide for you. That the people were to trust in God, but they did not do that. Continually through, through life, they did not do it. And so God says, my land is going to have its rest. And he pulls them out. And when Babylon removes them, Daniel's understanding, and as Jeremiah, from the prophet Jeremiah, that, okay, that's only for a certain amount of time. It's only for this extended time. And so Daniel is looking and saying, hey, this is coming. This is coming. We're going to be going back to the land. Lord, when is it? Show me what's going to happen. And then you get extremely important prophecies in Daniel 9 and 10 uh, of the 70 weeks of Daniel and how that all starts to flesh out. But it's couched in, it's couched in the Mosaic Covenant, the law, and they're breaking, they're breaking of the Sabbath. So it's just interesting how when you start going through scriptures and understand the, the Mosaic law weaves through everything. And it's important to understand that. But the law is more than just those Ten Commandments. The law, when you start to look at the law and, and see what happens, the, the law, it deals with um, the civil law. When we look at, we look at it, it's, it deals with civil law. How does, how does Israel, they supposed to govern themselves? It deals with ceremonial laws. When you go to worship, how, how are you supposed to enter into worship as a Jew? What are they supposed to do as far as sacrifices? Which sacrifices are they supposed to bring? How many? How often? When do they need to go to, uh, for, for a big feast? When is the other feast not important? What, what plays into it? And you can look through the, the scriptures and understand those things. And then there's moral laws that are given, such as the Ten Commandments that transcend the law. They, they are already in place and even going through. You look at the moral laws. Those are laws that, I mean, as a human, as a human race, we should be following. We ought to have no other gods before us. We ought to have no graven image. We ought to not bear false witness. We ought to not take the name of the Lord in vain, which is interesting. You know, we, that's, that's one that has just went by the wayside, especially even in, in Christian cultures. Looking at the way, like, how do we flippantly take the name of Jesus, of God, in our, in our, in our culture? I mean, you get, you get into certain geographic areas of, of our nation, and they're like, well, that's just the way we talk. You know, and it's like, but you're still taking God's name flippantly. And you, to do that, that's a violation of a moral law, a moral principle. So we have to be looking at that. To, to not steal, to not kill. Those are moral laws that transcend. We can't look and say, well, that's part of the law, so I don't have to obey that. Well, the ones that are, as they're reiterated in the New Testament, especially, and that's why nine of the ten are reiterated. We, under the age, in the age of grace, we have a responsibility still to hold to those moral truths, the moral laws. Uh, that are given. Now, the law is interesting to Israel because it has consequences. Uh, the fourth one there, the law, the law's consequences. They're expressed through blessings and cursings. If you obey them, Israel, there's going to be blessings. If you don't obey them, there's going to be cursings. And so to not do this is going to bring chastisement upon you. To not obey the Sabbath, guess what? There's going to be consequences. If you continue to, to do this, I'm going to bring in other nations. They're told that, that God will bring in other nations and that he will use those people to chasten them. And so in his relationship with Israel, God comes, uh, God's blessing comes through Israel's obedience and obedience will yield this long life in, pro- in the promised land, but disobedience will result in exile. This was given way back. You can look back into Deuteronomy, and it talks about it. That you're looking and saying, hey, Israel, if you don't do this. So this was not just God like randomly just deciding, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to just exile you out of the land. God's patience and long-suffering with the people was evident. 
to allow them to go for generations and generations. But he looks and he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to curse you. There's going to be judgment there if you don't obey. you you got to start looking. At least when I look through, I, I wrote down, God's promises are sure, but will Israel obey? If they don't, what hope is there for the world? Because it would seem like, all right, everything is coming through Israel. And as, we, as you look at history and you look at the, the one, if you go back to creation, okay, we're going to start with Adam. Genesis 3.15. There's going to, Adam, Adam falls, then the humanity is cast into sin. And it starts off like this big funnel. And Adam in you and out of the woman, there is going to be one who is going to come to save the people from their sins. Now, we don't know who that one is. If, if you're tracking through history, we have the beauty of hindsight. There's going to be one who's going to come out of you. Okay, so all these people, thousands and millions of people are being born. And then there's Noah and there's the flood. And God makes a covenant with Noah. And he says, okay, Noah, I'm promising you that I'm not destroying the world. In fact, the promise I made to Adam will be validated. And we're going to come through. So Noah it goes through the flood. They live out of Noah, there's going to come one. Eventually it gets down to Abraham. Abraham, out of you, there's going to come one who is going to bless all the nations. He's going to provide uh, a, a salvation for them. And through, through you, Abraham. So we can see this narrowing that God is now working through Abraham and his lineage. Now that continues, we get to David, the king. And we'll look at David in a second here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is told, through you there is going to be one who is going to come. So you see this continual narrowing through scriptures moving us ultimately to Jesus Christ. Because God, through his law and through everything else that he's doing, is moving us to this point of Jesus Christ is the one. He is the one who is going to come through Adam. He's going to be a Jew. He's going to be in the line of David. He's going to provide salvation for humanity and be a blessing to all people. So God is is working. But you look at Israel and you're like, man, the way they're messing up, the way that this is all happening, God has exiled them out of the land. Can there really be, can there really be hope for us? And yet that's the beauty of a covenant-keeping God. That he has told Abraham, and he will not break it, that there will come one from you. David, I'm telling you, there will come one from your line who will sit on your throne forever, for all of eternity. So we can look back and say, yes, it looks dismal for Israel and it looks dismal for people. But ultimately, there is one coming, and we know that there has been one who has come that fits all that criteria, lives his holy and sinless and perfect life, dies on the cross, and he establishes something new. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But when you look at Israel's history, it's, it's dismal. And you get to the end of Joshua 24. Joshua looks at the people. And all right, choose you this day who you will serve. And what do they say? Well, we'll serve the Lord. He says, you can't. You're going to fail. No, we'll serve the Lord. He says, you can't do it. You're going you're to try and keep the law, but you're going to fail. And he says, no, we're, we're going to do it. And Joshua says, okay, this is, this is a covenant between you and me and the, the people. We are going to covenant to serve the Lord. So they, serve, they choose to serve the Lord. And it says at the end of Joshua, they served the, the, the Lord all the days of Joshua, and those, those people did. But right on the heels of Joshua is what book? Judges. And what happens to Israel and Judges? And then they, oh, we're going to do this again. And what happens again? The whole cycle of judges continues to happen. And you look, and I, I look and I'm like, man, 
there is a little hope through this nation, and yet the greatest hope of all nations comes through these people. Why? Because God faithfully keeps his promises to his people. And so as, as I look through that and say, okay, that's important. So throughout Israel's history, and we're going to do the, the Paul Harvey thing here for a second and give you a read through the rest of the story a little bit, but I'm going to start making notes on the side. Uh, through Israel's history, a relationship has existed between the faithfulness of God and the faithless, uh, faithfulness of Israel. As they're faithful, God is blessing them. As they're faithless, God is, is uh, judging them and, and allowing that to happen. The covenant-keeping Lord kept his word by bringing Israel safely to Canaan, out of Egypt into Canaan. But once Israel violated her covenant promises with the hardness of their heart, much uh, like their forefathers, that's not a complete sentence. That's what I get for writing it late Thursday night. Uh, once, once Israel uh, violates her covenant promises, uh, like her forefathers did, there's judgment, just like, just like the forefathers received. And, and we see that happening. But then, as you go through the judges, as you see that history playing out, it gets to the end, and the people want what? They want a king. They want a king like the other nations. And God is looking and saying, wait, it's designed that I am your king. They were in what was called a theocracy. God was in control. God was the one ruling. There was a mediator between them, but God was the one who was king of the people. And they said, no, we want a king of flesh and blood. Like we can see that we can rule, that we can go to. They wanted a king. And so God gives them, gives them their desires. He allows them. He says, it's not the best thing for you, but he allows them to have Saul. And Saul starts good, but he ends, ends horribly. But through that comes the one. The apple of God's eye, David. David comes on the scene. Let's go over to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David comes on the scene, and as he goes through his life, we, we're well aware, Pastor's done many series on, on David, uh, and what, is, what has happened with David, and how he rises to power, but he still respects Saul, and he's doing things correctly, and he's honoring God, and he's writing scripture, and he's writing the Psalms, and you have this man who goes through the highs, he goes through the lows. He ends up, he ends up by, you know, later in his life with Bathsheba. We know the story there. Psalm 51, though, I love it. And my life verse comes out of Psalm 51, verse 13. He says, Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. I love that verse because if David, in the midst of adultery and murder and deception and lies, if God can still look and say, You repent and you get right with me, I can still use you. No matter what. He says, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners can be converted unto you. God can still use any of us who have fallen into despair and into sin and into wickedness through repentance and through restoration with him. So don't lose hope. If you're in those situations, you look and say, okay, I need to take care of that with God. And he can still use me. And he still wants. And I think that's an important dynamic for us as a church to remember too. Just because somebody in their past has maybe had some wicked, wicked, vile sins. Just because somebody in their past has chosen to, to do something, but now is restored and is right with God. If God can look and say, those people can be used, what right do I have to stand on a pedestal and say, no, they can't? God's looking and saying, I can. Now, there's parameters and different things like that through Scripture, but we need to remember that God continues. And you look, through, you look through the story of Scripture, the brokenness of humanity, the mercy and the long-suffering and the graciousness of God. The mercy is continually there 
in the midst of broken people. And as we are broken, as we are struggling, going back to knowing that there is a merciful, a gracious, and a long-suffering God who is patient, who wants us to repent, who wants us to be right with him. But David comes on the scene. We know all of those things happen. And by the time, by the time he dies, David really is merely a shadow of his greatness. I mean, you look by the end of David's life, and it's, it's a sad statement, the coldness of David. If you remember how he's dying, he's in bed, and he, in order to keep him warm, all of the, the maidens, the concubines, all the different ladies are coming in to lay in bed with him to keep him warm. And you have this, you have this weird situation of, here's this, this king who was so great. It's just, it's just a shadow of his greatness. All the things that came into his life because of his sin, be, there were still consequences to his sin. There were still things that happened. But it's, he's not the glorious king that he once was. And yet, there is a covenant that is made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is going to look at David and say to him, hey, there's some things I'm going to promise to you. And, and David's going to be battling. Like, what's going to happen to my kingdom? What happens after I die? Every king battles with that. They want their successors. They want to know what's going to happen. And look at the I will statements. Again, this is, this is God saying, this is what I will do. David, not upon your faithfulness, not upon your unfaithfulness. This is what I'm going to do for you. And he says, I will, um, verse 9, I will make you a great name. I will also, verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them. So I'm going to go back to the promises. I'm reiterating. There is a place for you. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will, the Lord will make a house for you. And so he's making these promises to David, but as you go a little bit further, he gets very specific on what's going to happen. Verse 12, when your days are complete, you lay down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. As a king, a frail king who's starting to, you know, see the glory of his kingdom maybe diminish a little bit, God is looking and saying, David, I'm going to establish your dynasty. I will make your kingdom to continue. He, he shall, the one who's going to come out of, out of your kingdom, your son, the next one, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. So who's he talking about in verse, verse 13? Initially, who's the one who's going to build the house for the Lord? Solomon. So he looks and says, your son, David, I know you want to build me a house. I know you want to build me a temple, but I don't want it built by a warrior's hand. I want it built by another. So Solomon, your son will, he's going he's gonna to be king and he's going to build this. But how long is this throne going to be? This throne is going to be eternal. David, it, there is always, now it's not a promise that someone will always successfully in an uninterrupted fashion rule, but ultimately David's throne, one will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem for eternity. There will be this one who will come. He says in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of, uh, with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I uh, took away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So he's making another promise. And how do we know verses 14 and 15 are not relating to Jesus Christ directly? Because of what? He's going to, yeah, he's going to end up in iniquity. Okay, Jesus Christ does not end up in sin. But he looks and he says, I will, I will deal with your sons 
your, your dynasty line. If, they, if they're in sin, I'm going to deal with them. But my loving kindness, my, my covenant-keeping love shall not depart. I'm making these promises. Your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The one who will come, David, there will be one who will come who will sit on your throne forever. The one who is going to come to be our king, the one who is going to come to be our savior is and must come through the line of David. Why is it important when we get to the New Testament that he is from the household and lineage of David? Why? Because if he is going to be the Messiah, if he is going to be the king, he must, according to prophecy, according to the covenant given to David, he must be from David's lineage. That's why it's so important for when when Matthew and Luke start going through and, and tracing lineage back, there's ties back to Old Testament because of these covenant promises. When we look through it, the the Davidic covenant basically promises David, you would have a successor. He says that your son is going to build the temple, that this throne is going to be forever. He says, my loving kindness, my, my, my grace, my mercy, my covenant keeping promises to you will be forever. And David, your household, your kingdom will be forever. Again, not uninterrupted, but the right to rule in Israel the right to rule on that throne will always and forever be through the Davidic line. And so it's important that Jesus Christ, the one who will, though he's, he's we, where, is he ruling on David's throne right now? He's not. He's not. Where is, where is, where is Christ seated at? The right hand of the Father. But when he comes back, when he returns after the second coming, Where will we find him? We will find him seated on the throne of David. He is the rightful heir, the rightful one who will be there on that throne. So we look forward to that because of the covenant-keeping promises. How do we know it will happen? Because the covenant-keeping God has said it will happen. And we look forward to that and we see how that will play out. Now, David's son Solomon then comes on the scene and he starts out strikingly well, very much like David, and he exceeded David in wisdom. He exceeded David in economy and kingdom and in his rule, uh, but it was short-lived. And we know that his, even though he's wise, he doesn't make good choices all the time. And all this is being fulfilled in David's greater son, but although Solomon was the first king, that last statement I have in there, the kingdom rose and fell under David, but it rose higher and fell harder under Solomon. And by the end of Solomon's rule, we know that Israel is never the same. There ends up being the division. The kingdom divides after Solomon. We have the northern tribes of Israel. We have the southern tribes of Judah. And, and all of that begins to, to, to flesh out. And it's, it's never the same. And just ultimately, we end up in exile. Just like Adam was banished from the garden, Israel is going to be banished from the land. They're going to be pulled out in different ways, some by the Assyrian exile in the north and then by the Babylonian exile and captivity in the south. They're pulled out. And as we walk through biblical history and see God's promises unfold, an astounding tension develops between God, God's promises to redeem, and how, how is he going to keep his promises? And we, again, hindsight, we have the beauty of looking back. But as you are, let's say you're part of the remnant who comes back from Israel after Babylonian captivity. You start to help rebuild the temple. 
And then your generations, you know, your family gets established and it's going and going and going. And it's, it's hundreds of years after the temple's been rebuilt and Greece is no longer in control. Persia's no longer in control. Now these Romans are in and they're, they're taking over. And you're starting to look and saying, what's going on? We were promised by God that David's line was going to sit on the throne. We were promised by God that we were going to, to thrive in the land and we're back here and we're doing all this stuff and nothing's happening. How is he going to save us? How is he going to redeem us from this oppressive people? He did it for Egypt and, and the Jews before. Why not us? And, and people are starting and longing to look for the Messiah. Look for the one who is going to be king. And that's that perspective that they're looking and saying, political king, somebody to overthrow the Romans. And that sets up the framework for us as we enter into the New Testament. The, the context of all this provides a large-scale backdrop for many of the writings of the prophets. During that whole time, what are the prophets saying? They're saying to Israel, get back to God. Don't keep running. There is divine judgment that's coming. And if you don't, if you don't follow after what God has said and in the law, and if we're not following that, what can we expect? We can expect judgment. But what's interesting to me is they don't just talk about divine judgment. When you read through the prophets, they're also talking about this stunning and glorious salvation that one is going to come, that the good news is going to come. And many, many times when we walk through the prophets, and it's, I'm not discounting this, please. We focus on the who of salvation. Who's it pointing to? Oh, that there's going to be one who's going to come from Bethlehem of Ephrathah of Ju- Judah. We know that there's going to, the, the scepter's not going to pass from David's royal line. We know that, uh, that he's going to be from the household and lineage of David. We know that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he, he shall be God with us and he shall save his people from his sins. And we, we focus on the who of Christ. I'm not discounting that. We need to do that. Prophecy continually fulfilling that. But what's interesting to me as well is that the prophets don't just talk about the who, but many of them talk about the how. What is going to happen? How is this, how is this going to be fleshed out? And there's a whole bunch of passages when they start talking about the covenant of peace, the everlasting covenant, the covenant that is going to come called the new covenant. And they start to talk about this. They don't just talk about Christ, but they actually talk about how this is going to happen. In fact, Jeremiah 31, let's go over there. Jeremiah 31 is basically the linchpin of the new covenant. It is the, it is the final covenant that is given in the Bible. And there's absolutely no way in 13 minutes that I can even remotely do the new covenant justice. Okay, but we're, we're going to hit some highlights. All of these covenants, everything in, in human history, in Old Testament history, is leading and pointing to this covenant that is going to come in Jeremiah 31. Uh, is, again, there's other passages that talk about it. But uh, down in verse 31, he says, But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Which is really interesting because who does he say he's making the covenant with? He's going to make it with the house of Israel, who often they are the what of God, the people of children of God, right? But he's like, there's something bigger here than just a genealogical lineage. There is, there is something within in order to become one of God's. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and his, uh, each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity 
and their sins will I remember no more. He, t- he talks about that I'm going to, to write things on their heart, that I'm going to do something internal. He says that there is going to be one who is going to come. There's, there's going to be something new that happens, something different, something better than the old covenant. In fact, Galatia, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8 reiterates that. And in the context of Hebrews chapter 8, um, Paul, or whoever the author of Hebrews, I think it's Paul um, personally, but uh, the, writer, the writer of Hebrews is, is stating that Christ is better than, and he goes through all these different things, and he's going to talk about the Old Covenant, the, the Mosaic Law. And uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 7, uh, verse 6, he's talking about he's obtained a more excellent ministry. He's also a better a mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Talking about Christ, what Christ has done. He's the mediator of this better covenant, this new covenant. For if that first covenant, talking about the law, the old covenant, had been faultless, there would be no occasion sought for a second covenant. He looks and says, the, the old covenant did not satisfy what was necessary. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, as you go through Galatians chapter 3, it talks about what was the purpose of the law. The law pointed out our sinfulness. The, the, the law was our tutor. It highlighted the sinfulness of humanity. It showed the, the difficulties that we are going to have in keeping the law. It was not possible. It was not possible aside from Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Because he is God in the flesh. He is able to demonstrate in a, in a beautiful way. Jesus is able to look and say, if you could live out the law to its nth degree and perfectly do it, this is what it would look like. We, we see that revealed in Jesus Christ. But as humans, flawed by sin, with our sin nature, it is impossible to do that. So we needed, what did it do? It pointed out our need of a savior. It pointed out our need for blood to be shed in order to atone for our sins. Well, when you're under the old law, how often were you bringing those sacrifices? On a regular basis. Why? Because as you're, as you're sinning, the blood and bulls of bulls and goats, they, they did not have this eternal everlasting fulfillment of, of kafar, of covering. But through Jesus Christ, we do. He is a better sacrifice. He, is a, he makes a better covenant with us. The, the new covenant, as we look at it, we look at the I wills of the new covenant. And, and the writer here, I mean, basically rewrites or requotes re- Jeremiah. Here he says, Behold, the days, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. So notice that he says, I will make a new covenant. In the time of Jeremiah, he was saying, it's not here yet. It's something that's coming in the future. To Jeremiah and Israel at that time, it's going to come. He says, even, he even says, it's interesting to me, who's the covenant going to be made with? In the, Israel and who? Judah. Okay. He, he talks about both of them. But when Jeremiah is around, Israel's already in captivity. They're gone. And how, how do you make it? How do, how's that covenant made with both? How's it, you know, so if, if Israel and Judah aren't back in the land. But remember, remember that uh, there are people living in the land by the time of Jesus Christ that are descendants of the northern tribes. Now, the Jews don't like them because who are they? 
the Samaritans. But the Samaritans are descendants of the Jews. How does that happen? It goes back to captivity. Assyrian captivity was not exile everybody out of the land. Assyrian captivity was not a, was not a is it expatriation where they take them all out. What, he, what they would do is they would take people from other lands and bring them in and leave some of the people there. So they would, take, they would take me out of the land. They would leave Sharon. And then they would bring in another person from Zimbabwe, bring them here and say, okay, Sharon, you're married to this guy. That's what they would do. And they would force, they would force intermarriage. And they felt that by causing these different dynamics to happen that they would help to subdue the land. That was the Assyrian form of exile. So there were still people living in the land during that time that were part of, part of Israel proper, like old school. So when God makes a promise with Israel and Judah, there are people. In fact, when we get to the Great Commission, where, where's the gospel to go? Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. It was, there was a dynamic that says, these people were going to them. This is a promise that I've made. So, so they do that. Now, the question then is, if the new covenant is made for Israel, I'm not a Jew. The new covenant was given to Israel. So how do I participate in that? I think, I think Romans 11 helps us out a lot with that. Remember where it talks about that there are some because of their unbelief been broken off the tree. And we as Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish blessings. We are, we are grafted in so that we draw from that. So we are part of the promises to Abraham. Galatians 3 again talks about that. We, are, we receive some of those blessings as well. And the greatest blessing that we receive is that universal blessing promised to Abraham that all of us can take part in. That is salvation through Jesus Christ. So the new covenant was future at the time of Jeremiah. We can look back and say the new covenant is part now. I mean, when we, when we take part of the, the communion table, the text says, this is the new what? Now, the King James says New Testament, but the, the word is, this is the new covenant in my blood. It reminds us that we are part of this new, this new covenant that's taken place. He says, I will make it happen. So it's going to be at some point after that. Look what he says is going to happen. Totally different than what was happening with the, with the old law. No longer on tables of stone would the laws be written. They're going to be written upon our hearts. They're going to be written in our minds. How are we going to learn? The Holy Spirit, there is going to be one. God is going to teach us the beauty of the priesthood of the believer that we have. That we don't need a priest to intercede on our behalf. We have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. We can go to the scriptures and understand the scriptures in our own study. Why? Because the spirit within us, if you are saved, is teaching you. He's, that's, a, that's a promise made by God to those in the new covenant. To those who are saved, he says, I will teach you. I will put my law, I will help you to understand in your heart and in your mind what to do, how to act. Now, that doesn't mean we're just going to do it. We're not automatons. We still have a responsibility. Just like Israel in past, as they learned the laws, they had a choice to do them or not. We have the same as we read scriptures, as God works in our heart to say, will we or will we not? Obey the law that has been written on our heart. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. There is a relationship that occurs. God says, when you are saved, when you enter into this new covenant relationship with me, you are mine. I, I personally, as I'm studying out the new covenant more and more, I believe it is one of the strongest arguments for eternal security that there is in the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
the, the, the emphasis that he makes as the covenant-keeping God, he says, I will do this, is the same emphasis that he, that we love to champion the cause of Israel way back here and says, the promised land is Israel's. Why? Because God said it and they belong in the land because he says, I will give them this land. I will give them blessings. I will do the, all those promises. The emphasis that God made with Abraham about the covenant is the same emphasis that he's making in the new covenant and saying, I will be your people. You will be my, I will be your God. You will be my people. There's a wonderful relationship. Covenant is about relationship. And he enters into that and he says, there's this binding emphasis. And he says that. And then what's the next thing he says? I will forgive them of their iniquities. I will, I will remember their sins no more. That's hard for me. Because I remember your sins. You remember mine. If you, if you do something against me or I do something against you, it takes a long time for me to be able to put that aside because my human nature is bitter, frustrated, angry. And yet, in this relationship we have with God, when a person gets saved, their sins he remembers no more. Even when their iniquities occur and there is repentance, we know from New Testament passages that he is faithful, that he is just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We beat ourselves up. I think the, the person who's often slowest to forgive is ourselves. I, yes, I take it to God. I take my sins to God, but then I beat myself up over it. Can God really forgive me for that sin? Would God forgive me for the struggles? The answer is yes. Those are the promises that he makes. And so it, to me, it's such a hopeful passage to look and say, God is doing something new. I don't, I don't have to continually go back and back and back to try and get atonement for this, this sin that I did. When I confess my sins to God, he, he does remember them no more. He puts them. So just some brief thoughts I put on thoughts on the new covenant. There's a whole bunch more. And I know, again, this, the new covenant is something we could study for 13, 14, 15 weeks and even longer. But the new covenant was not established at the time of Jeremiah. It's only predicted. Uh, the new covenant is different in essence from the law. The, the, the law would focus on, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it here in a second. Uh, the new covenant uh, is inscribed within a person. It's not on tables of stone. It's not written, it's, it's within us. Now it is, it is in the scriptures. We do have the law inscripturated. They're the commands of God. Uh, the new covenant produces an eternal living relationship between God and his people. The Old Testament, the old, or the Old Covenant, excuse me, the, the Mosaic Law, it stressed what man was to do for God, or really, ultimately, what man could not do. Because of our sinfulness, we could not keep the law. Even if we could do our best, remember what James says? If a man keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he's what? He's guilty of all the law. And so the law, what does the law continually do? It points out our sinfulness. It points out of our need for a savior. And so God is looking and saying, Israel, there's someone coming. This one under the new covenant is going to do this. The one who is the Messiah, the one who we've been talking about from Adam to Abraham to Noah to Moses, all the way through this one, Jesus Christ. I love the beauty of how the Old Testament just continually is pointing to Jesus Christ and looking and saying, he's the one. The new covenant stresses what God will do within and for mankind. 
that he will forgive us of our sins, that he is able to atone. Hebrews, always talking about he is the better of all of these things. He doesn't, he doesn't just say the law is bad. Christ never says the law is bad. Christ says, I've come to fulfill, to complete the law, to make it perfect, to show you what it looks like. The covenant emphasizes the, the diving instructions. Yes, the divine <laughs> instructions. That's where spell check gets you in trouble, right there. Okay, the new, the new covenant emphasizes divine instruction and illumination of each believer. That he will. That God has made a promise. You say, I can't understand scripture. That's not true. It's too hard for me. That's not true. I might be personally too lazy at times to want to study hard passages of Scripture. I might not want to take the time to study, and so I just chalk it up to say, well, I'm not smart, so I can't do that. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, if you are saved, the new covenant makes a promise by God that he will instruct, he will illumine, he will help you, he will teach you in your heart as you're learning God's word. The new covenant produces eternal forgiveness of sins. The unrighteousness in the old, co- the old covenant, the unrighteousness of man is brought, uh, brought the judgment of God. In the new covenant, our unrighteousness demonstrates God's mercy. And God's mercy to sinners is available. Why? Because Christ satisfied the divine demands for sin. In taking our punishment on the cross, he made a way for us to enter into a binding wonderful agreement with God through salvation that I can enter in and have this relationship with him and he will take the penalty of sin, put that on Christ and allow me to have this right relationship with him. I'm so thankful for the new covenant, for what God has done through that. And the new covenant caused the Mosaic covenant to become old. There are many things that it is done away with. We don't have a sacrificial system. Our sacrifices are done once and for all, finished in Christ. The law in many aspects, some of the ceremonial aspects, some of the civil aspects, we're not Israel. We're not under that law. We are in the, in the, in the new age, this age of grace, where we can follow after the word of God. And as God instructs his law upon our heart, and as we do what is right before him, we're going through his word and through him to do what is right. Now, it doesn't mean, again, I'm not going to dismiss the Old Testament. Wonderful, solid principles. It is God's revelation to us to understand what he desires, what he wants from his people. So don't dismiss that. But this morning, as we have the opportunity to worship, we're going to be singing a bunch of songs about Jesus Christ today. Being able to focus and look and say, this is the one. I can enter into this covenant. All those Old Testament covenants that you look and say, man, I would have loved for God to make a covenant with me, like Abraham or like David or like with with Adam or whoever. I would love that he would make a covenant with me. He did. Through salvation, we have entered into a covenant with him. And as a covenant God, he expects loyalty and faithfulness. That's what the covenant does. The king, the supreme, the divine one gives us something, but in return, there is expected loyalty, there is expected following, and expected obedience. It's a wonderful relationship to have. Hopefully you have it. I think many here do, but if you don't, find out today how you can enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ.
But let's take that. Let's go to worship this morning and really be saying thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. Thank you.